That is real power. They're shaping the way we perceive reality. From whitewashing Stalin's mass starvation of millions of Ukrainians to major factual inaccuracies about America's founding. Yet the Durante got the Pulitzer, he brought home the bacon. Today I sit down with Ashley Rinsberg, author of The Grey Lady Winked, how the New York Times misreporting, distortions and fabrications radically alter history. We discuss the media malfeasance he sees in major publications like the New York Times, notably when it comes to reporting on communist and socialist regimes and the origins of COVID-19. You don't have front page headlines saying we were wrong. You have tiny little corrections in the back of the newspaper or maybe online somewhere or even stealth editing. But in the minds of the readers, those stories stick. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Ashley Rinsberg, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. It's great to be here. So Ashley, I have to say, I've been stunned reading The Grey Lady Winked. Um, It's a dense book. You have a ton of information in here. And frankly, uh, just a lot of details about some of the, I would say, you know, most disturbing media malfeasance. So tell me a little bit, of course, the story is about some of these, you know, massive stories like the New York Times kind of missing the reality of the Holodomor of the, you know, basically starvation of Ukrainians under, Stal- under Stalin to the tune of, you know, six, seven million. We don't even know the exact numbers. Um, and of course, Walter Durante, most, many people know this story. There's been films about this, but, you know, that, that's, that's kind of just the tip of the iceberg. How did you actually get interested in this? I was just really curious. It, it was just a sort of question about what we read and what we consider to be um, credible. And the New York Times is supposed to be this paragon of credibility and what they print is truth. That's the narrative, right? That's what we're told and taught to believe. And that's part of the New York Times brand. And I stumbled across this claim by William Shirer, who was a journalist um, in the 1930s and 40s and reporting from Europe during World War II, who said that on the eve of World War II, the outbreak of hostilities, the Times had printed that Poland had invaded Germany. And I was just kind of like, wait, what? How, is this true? Can it be true? Um, and I started to look into it. I went into the Times archives, which were by that point already online, and I pulled up the stories. And that story from September 1st, 1939, was the lead story of that day, did indeed report that Polish guerrillas had invaded Germany along the border, and Hitler was just kind of responding as any tyrant would respond to belligerents. Um, and that turned out to be a huge lie. That was a piece of Nazi propaganda that the Germans had put out specifically to dupe outlets like the New York Times. But I had to ask myself, wait a second, this is not 1930 or 29. This is 19. 19- 39, the end of 1939, the world knew about Nazi propaganda and Nazi lies. This was not a new thing in the world. Why did they take the bait? That's what I really wanted to understand in that initial question. And that led me into that first chapter in the book, uh, which was the gateway to the rest of the, the book and the subsequent nine chapters. Well, you know, and and Nazi aggression and Nazi, you know, kind of expansion of the of the motherland and, you know, everything else. None of this was sort of, uh, you know, hidden by this point. And uh, and frankly, you know, the racism and all the actions against the Jewish people that wasn't hidden either. Yeah. 
Yeah, and these were things that the New York Times, as I did this research, I discovered that the New York Times was either downplaying it, completely omitting these types of stories, or sort of like painting them with a very kind brush, uh, whitewashing, and and not giving the truth in many cases. For example, casting the Berlin Olympics, the Nazi Olympics, as the greatest sporting event of all time. That was the huge headline. That's what they took away from the games in which Jews were not allowed to participate. And there was really, in that lead story, that big feature piece they did about the Berlin Olympics, there was gushing enthusiasm for the games by the New York Times reporter. And no mention that this was put on by the Nazis, that it was considered another propaganda ploy by the Germans, that swastikas were bedecked the streets of Berlin. It was really just kind of sanitized. And again, you think, how is this possible? This is the New York Times. This is the great bastion of liberal journalism in America. And this is how they reported on a, a grotesque display of German race superiority in, in the Nazis' minds. Um, and that was just one of many such incidents that I discovered. And as you mentioned, a pattern of obvious, of course, these are the Nazis. This is as evil as it gets. And the New York Times is downplaying this stuff for years leading up to that 1939 uh, lead story that they published that day. Well, you know, and you make an, a kind of an interesting connection here. Well, because of course, you know, the owners are Jewish and, and, and I think everybody knows that. So it just, it seems particularly odd that, that, that they would do this. But at the same time, you mentioned that there's this, there is also this kind of climate of anti-Semitism in, in America at the time, right? The owners at the time were a Jewish family. They were they were actually German Jews uh, who had immigrated to America, and and they were proud Americans. Actually, um, their their overriding desire was to fit in, to keep their heads down, to not be called out as Jews. They went so far as to embrace this ideology that didn't consider the Jews to be a people, just a manner of worship, like any other sort of religious uh, worship. You would just worship in a particular way, but you were not a separate people. And what that led them to do was make these very strange contortions. For example, they tried to keep the word Jew out of the newspaper in all but necessary, the most necessary circumstances. And at the time, in the 1930s, they were really worried that if they were seen as a Jewish newspaper, they would lose readers. They would lose their edge in the marketplace. And that was another one of these considerations that had them, A, keep a uh, Nazi collaborator who was turned out running their Berlin bureaus. What explains all these insane stories about the Nazis and the sympathy for the Nazis is the guy running the show there was actually sympathetic toward the Nazis. And again, that was about them getting the best stories, the best scoops, because the Germans loved this guy. So they gave him great access. In return, they got great coverage. Everybody was happy, seemingly, except the American people. And of course, the Jews of Europe, who didn't have their story told in the most important news outlet in America at the time. They are willing to either enable or empower or allow these journalists to really go rogue so long as they bring the goods back. But it's come at the cost of the truth. It's come at the cost of people's lives, as we, see, as we saw in uh, the case of the Ukraine famine, and as well through the New York Times' cover-up of the Holocaust. Um, and their anti-immigration stance that they took against the Jews during those years. Um, that's the common thread there. Whatever the sympathies might be, the Times is willing to allow those sympathies 
to take hold. And we're seeing that right now with the 1619 Project and this woke awakening, this radical awakening in the newsroom. For them, that works as long as it enables them to continue to push the brand to grow their business. And we have to keep in mind, this is a $10 billion company with $2 billion in annual revenue controlled by a family of just a few dozen people. That is real power. They're shaping the way we perceive reality. And that is the overriding factor. Their ability to maintain that stranglehold on perception, on the uh, monopoly on the narrative. Well, and so this, you're, you kind of speak to this kind of pattern, you know, you document this pretty well, for example, with the Matthews reporting in Cuba, right? And, and actually, you know, arguably making Castro into this kind of legendary figure through the reporting, even before he was that way. So there's this, there seems to be this pattern that emerges from reading, right? That there's the, often people that are employed who are incredibly sympathetic to authoritarian leaders, in particular communist leaders, right? Of course, Durante and, uh, you know, Durante, I think Durante was invited, right, by Stalin saying, I want you to interview me. You're going to do a good job, right, for me. Um, and similarly, similarly with Castro visiting the, I, I mean, you know, so these, these are elements of history that I probably should have known, but, you know, Castro visiting the New York Times and kind of thanking the New York Times for their excellent coverage of, of him. It's wild stuff. Yeah, they, he he visited the New York Times over the course of decades to personally thank the publisher for what they had done for him. And they really had done a lot. They they really deserved the thanks because when Herbert Matthews, the, the Cuba correspondent for the Times, went and found Castro in the mountains of Cuba, he was really gone. Like he was he was irrelevant. He didn't have money, he didn't have guns, he didn't have men. And when Matthews published this front page story about Castro as this democratic messiah and kept publishing that story, that same trope over and over and over and elevating him to the level of a superstar. Then all of a sudden, overnight, you get the money, you get the guns, you get the men, you get the support, especially from Russia. And that was the key, is that if he was able to attract the backing of the Soviet Union, then he would be able to flourish. And that's exactly what happened. And it was because of the New York Times support for him, um, to the point that the Senate convened hearings about what the Times' coverage was doing for Castro. And the Times kind of scurried to get Matthews out of there and replace him with another reporter. But by that point, it was already too late. One reason why this was so interesting for me to read about is back in the day, so I was on the China human rights side before I went into journalism of things. And one of the things that always I found stunning was the New York Times' lack of coverage of the persecution of Falun Gong practitioners. I mean, you, it's almost like you can count on your hand the number of articles which, which, which mentioned that over the years. Levi Browdy makes this case in an article that he wrote, you know, basically that the, the, the publisher of the New York Times in 2001 went to China, you know, seeking access, as you described, right, um, met with Jiang Zemin, the dictator at the time, who had started this persecution. Essentially, it's since that time, so there was a bit of reporting, 1999 to 2001, but after that meeting, there seemed to be next next to none. There was there was a few few small exceptions, but that was just always fascinating. How can you miss this? Is you know, uh, one of the most persecuted groups in the world. How can you be missing this story? You know, repeatedly. But there's so there's this question. You know, what happened at that meeting? We always you know there we would theorize about this. 
the New York Times has put themselves in a very awkward and I think ethically dubious position with regard to China. They are desperately trying to enter that market. That is a huge consumer market, as we all know. And it's also a consumer news market. It is 1.4 billion potential newsreaders. And for the New York Times, who is looking, again, to be number one, to stay number one, especially at a time where the news industry is so squeezed and revenue is so hard to come by, that is an enticing market for them. And I think for them, it's also an, it's an existential matter. It's life or death in the long term. So they, as you mentioned, they go to China trying to go through the official channels in order to penetrate that market. And what they understand is that if they don't tow the CCP line on whatever issue is important to the leadership at that point, they are simply locked out of the market and they will remain so until they get in line. And I think what we see is you know, I don't necessarily think it's on a reporter by reporter basis that a reporter is out there on the ground saying, well, I can't report on this topic because the CCP is going to be angry. But I think from the top where the culture is set at the newspaper, where the editorial guidance is set, there is absolutely has to be that consideration. They've already found out the hard way when they bumped up against China's the Great Firewall, as it's uh, proverbially called. Uh, when they were locked out in, I think, 2011, 2012. And now they are trying to get back in. They, they still maintaining a Chinese edition of the newspaper. And again, like with the Falun Gong and the Uyghurs is exactly the same pattern we're seeing right now. Where's the reporting? Where are the op-eds? Where are the editorials? The pushback you often get about these issues is that well, it's not possible to do this kind of reporting on China because there's a stranglehold on information. The CCP is not allowing, allowing any of the information to come out. They're not allowing reporters to come in, et cetera. But what we, what we see with other topics that the Times gets really interested in is that never stops them from churning out multimedia projects, podcasts, doing deals with Netflix or Oprah to elevate these issues when they so choose, when it really is in their way or it lines up with their agenda. And I think that's the real key issue here is that there's an agenda at work. And you know something people often talk about is bias in media. It's a big topic, it's a buzzword. And what I caution people is to say that bias is not necessarily as big a deal as we think. It's kind of like I come with my assumptions, my experience in the world, my reporting might reflect a little bit of that but I don't come with this massive financial and ideological agenda. And that's the big di division here. And that's what we're really seeing, not just with the New York Times, with all of corporate media. And that's what the public is starting to get clued into as well, is that they cannot trust the incentives of a huge conglomerate to bring them the truth, to bring them their, their understanding of reality. You know, uh, one, speaking of this, uh, these agendas, and I don't, I don't know if there's a particular sort of financial incentive for this one, but you, you documented this, uh, you know, the, the, in the chapter of the crazy vets, you know, uh, extensive unprovoked killings. You know, there, there was a whole series which was, you know, problematic from the beginning, uh, criticized, you know, tell me the story. This is really interesting. The story is that um, right as the Iraq and Afghanistan wars are proceeding, um, the New York Times starts reporting in two different manners regarding veterans of these wars. One is that these people 
these servicemen and women are coming back broken. They're coming back with PTSD. Their bodies are torn apart. Their minds have been destroyed. Their souls are, are ripped apart. And the other track that they're reporting is that they come back as violent and homicidal in a lot of cases. Both were not true. In the one track, there, that reporting was done by a young sort of rising star reporter named Jason Blair. And it turned out he was just making this stuff up. He was not traveling to the places he was said he was going. He did not interview the people that he said he'd interviewed. And when the Times went back and, and actually interviewed these people, they said, yeah, I, I was injured, but I didn't lose faith in the mission and what I was doing, what I believed in or in the country. Uh, the, I didn't say any of those things. And what's interesting in that case is that Again, Blair was able to get away with this stuff when, just like Durante, it should have been caught. His reporting was going through the hands of multiple editors. There were flags raised around him, but the Times kept pushing that narrative. And then in this other series that they did, or, or it was a couple series, claiming that American servicemen and women were coming back from these wars and killing people, and which is an incredible claim to make. It's astounding to make that claim. But when you looked at the numbers, when you looked at the statistics, and I don't mean you needed to hire a team of statisticians, you could just be me and do the long division, which is what I did. And it shows you that there was no such pattern. In fact, those people, men and women coming back from those wars were committing violent crimes at a lower rate than the general population, but they continued to push that line anyway. There's also this this element where I think, and I think probably any organiz news organization would be susceptible this to this to some extent, but it's just like once you commit to a narrative, right? Once you explore a narrative, once you commit to it, once you've made some big stories about it, it's going to take some challenge. It's going to take some serious introspection to change that. You're going to have to see some really serious evidence, right? Because it's on the face of it, because basically you have to admit to the world that you're wrong and your detractors are going to celebrate and, and, and everything else. It does take that kind of courage, but I, I do think that that should be the norm. That should be standard operating procedure at any newsroom that considers itself, itself to be serious. And I think that's where, where we see this sort of big blind spot in the news industry where where you look at for, you know, in the U.S., for lawyers or accountants or doctors or even real estate agents, they have to sort of agree to some sort of code of ethics. We have the Hippocratic Oath or the bar. In journalism, you have nothing. You can just one day say, I'm a journalist and I'm going to do things this way or that way. And one of those things, one of those practices or, or malpractices is that when you have a huge story that's reported by the Times or by anybody else and really seeps into the national conversation becomes uh, hard in fact. And then it turns out that st the story is not true at all, as with the uh, Trump-Russia collusion narrative, that you don't have front page headlines saying we were wrong. You have tiny little corrections in the back of the newspaper or maybe online somewhere or even stealth editing that you don't even know it's been corrected that has no ability to match the proportion of the original story. And that is a huge problem because the record never really gets corrected in our minds. It gets corrected on newsprint or online technically, but in the minds of the readers, those stories stick. And I think that's what we're seeing with a lot of the big themes and tropes and stories of the past couple of years. 
Well, so you're just making me think of, you know, uh, the New York Times, I think, leads the world in Pulitzers, right, in Pulitzer Prizes. And so, in, indeed, Walter Duranty won a Pulitzer for his incredibly fallacious and destructive reporting on the Holodomor, right? And so I, one of the things I had no idea about was that the New York Times had actually hired its own, like an independent consultant to assess whether that Pulitzer should be rescinded, right? And the, and the consultant found that indeed it should. But then what happened? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, no big surprise there, right? The, they hire a historian to assess what they should do. He says, well, Durante clearly covered up the famine. It clearly was a historical event. We know this. And you should give the Pulitzer back. This is an open and shut case. And the publisher of the New York Times, who was the chairman of the New York Times company as well as the the scion of uh, the, the family, the Salzburg family, said, no, we're not going to give it back. And he came up with this series of ridiculous excuses. One of them, the most absurd, was we don't really know where the prize is. Um, I don't think anyone was expecting them to wrap up the prize in a box and mail it back to Columbia University. Uh, but the other and more problematic excuse that he gave was that to rescind the prize, to give the prize back, would be something like an act of airbrushing history. There's something that the Soviets used to do all the time, literally, with photographs. Um, and you think to yourself, wait a second, it was Durante who airbrushed history. It was Durante who whitewashed what was going on, the, the crimes against humanity that Stalin had committed in Ukraine at the time. It is not an act of airbrushing to correct the record. It's just correcting the record. So, you know, there's this inordinate effort being put into the 1619 project you described. And, you know, there's um, all, all sorts of highly credible historians and, you know, kind of across the political spectrum, so to speak, that note how problematic it is. You even have, you know, the, the I guess the lead reporter, creator of the project basically saying this isn't historical. Uh, this is, you know, a kind of a perspective, a lens. I, that, I'm, I'm, those aren't the exact words, but effectively, I think that's what she's saying. But that it isn't being, it's not presented that way in the school curriculums that were created that are being implemented. And th th this, is, this is kind of interesting in itself. Yeah, it, th that is absolutely the case. The, the Times published this huge initiative, uh, the 1619 Project, very quickly you have major historians from across the political spectrum um, and news outlets, again, from across the political spectrum, from the far left to the right, saying, wait a second, these claims are not historically supportable. They're simply not true. For Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project, to write in her essay in that magazine issue that the Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery is just on its face false. There is no historical evidence to support it whatsoever. It was a claim that the New York Times actually fact-checked with a professor of African-American history at Northwestern University who told them it's not a claim that they can make. It's false. It's wrong. And they made it anyways. And the key there is to understand that the mistakes, the errors, and the falsehoods were not a problem for the New York Times. They didn't correct the biggest ones. They maybe had, they tried to defend them. They left most of them in there. And what you really start to understand is that those falsehoods were the point. 
Because if you're trying to change history, you literally have to change it. And that's exactly what the project does. It literally changes history without any basis, without evidence in a non-scholarly way. But for the population that is consuming this stuff in schools, on podcasts, in the production, the TV and film productions that are forthcoming, it is taken as hard fact, hard and fast truth. Because again, it's the New York Times brand and the New York Times wouldn't print anything not true, right? This is how these things get sort of embalmed in the public consciousness. So have you gotten any pushback for doing this book? Yeah, there, there is always pushback when um, you know, you're challenging an institution as powerful and well-entrenched as the New York Times. You know, when it came time to try to get the book into the world, which actually was quite a long time ago, was really 15 or so years, I was met with resistance every step of the way. I was able, through some relationships and connections, to get to the very top levels of the publishing world where people told me outright that they could never challenge the New York Times. They could never take that risk of publishing a book like this. And I understood from their point of view what they were saying. So when we think about, even within publishing, book publishing, the most powerful marketing tool in the entire book publishing industry is the New York Times bestseller list. And the New York Times has actually argued in court that that is an editorial property. It's not something based on raw numbers. It's based on the decision-making of their editors, which means they are able and they, they often do blacklist books and blacklist authors, and people are just afraid of it. They're afraid of that blacklist. They're afraid of falling out of favor with the king. And that's the resistance that I kept running up against um, back then. Now, when I brought out the book more recently, where independent media is much more powerful, there's, there's a much greater presence in the world today. I still met with that kind of resistance. I still had people within my own circles, people who are uh, friends close to me, really react very strongly in ways that you know really could have deterred me if I'd allowed them to. Um, if you allow that fear to get inside you, what might happen? But I think the, the tide is turning. We're seeing that independent media are, is becoming very powerful. The voices are becoming louder. You've got great reporting coming from independent sources. And I think this is where the, the future lies for, for news and for journalism. You know, he, here's the thing, right? Um, New York Times has written, you know, a, a number of, of hit pieces uh, against us, right? The thing that troubles me the most with them, I, you know, I, I don't mind to some extent us being attacked. I think that comes with the territory. But because of our connection in our origins to Falun Gong practitioners, right, most of these pieces actually end up being kind of attacks on as I mentioned earlier, one of the most persecuted groups in the world. I don't, I, I don't actually think the Epoch Times comes off terribly bad in it, but, but there's all sorts of misrepresentations and stuff straight out of the Chinese Communist Party uh, propaganda that I can see in these things. And that, I, I find that really troublesome. And I would hope someone would really think about this and, and, and change their tune. Like, we can take our hits, but don't, don't attack these people. That's the thing that we see, and that's where this becomes tragic, is that, again, the Times is, is 
always willing to take the gloves off when it when it when it calls for it when it's within their interest when it serves their agenda we see it um, across the board we see it with Israel's another great example of it is that their reporting on Israel sometimes borders on the ridiculous because they it, it is an assault um, on Israel where balance is thrown out the window and what you end up with is not reporting you end up with really something that more closely resembles someone pushing an ideology. And I think that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what we're seeing Um, with China. That's certainly the case. And with Israel, with India, that's another hotspot. The New York Times loves to report on India in a certain way. But I think you're right to say what they are losing in that is far more valuable. They're losing trust. They're losing people's ability to say, this is a respected news source. Surely they wouldn't do that. Surely they wouldn't put their own interest and their own agenda in front of this duty to gather the facts and present the truth. But people are starting to wake up to the fact that that's not the case, that they do go on the attack, that they do attack groups like the Falun Gong, like Israel, like Jews, like Indians and Hindus. And it's getting more and more serious and people are getting more and more turned off by it. Um, you know, on, on Lab Leak, which is something I reported on recently, the New York Times was absolutely instrumental in working to discredit the theory that the coronavirus might have emerged from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And other voices were saying, wait a second, that may not be the case. There might be reason to think that it did come from this laboratory. Not that it necessarily did but that it's a possibility where the New York Times on its and its corner is saying there is no possible way. This is 100 percent a animal spillover. It came from a bat. There's no other way to think about this. And if you think about it any other way, you're a racist and xenophobic and a conspiracy theorist. Where on the other side of it, you have people saying, let's just think this through. Let's just consider the facts. And I think which is the model that is better suited to you as a news consumer. For me personally, I want to hear people who are open-minded, open to considering alternative theories, open to presenting different versions of what they believe to be the case, what happened there, rather than to say, no, let's shut the door, lock it. There's no possibility there. And if you think differently from us, you're basically a lunatic. Well, you know, this is, I'm glad you're talking about this. You know, you wrote this amazing uh, piece in Tablet. We've, of course, at the Epoch Times, we've covered the lab leak extensively. You know, we have this whole giant uh, infographic that basically catalogs everything that has happened. But no, but you tackled the media response. And again, you know, true to form, meticulously researched and thoughtful. And, you know, I hadn't really thought of it entirely that way. You know, we, we published, I think in April of 2020, we published a documentary uh, that essentially said exactly what you said, that the lab leak is something that, lab leak idea, there's evidence there was some kind of genetic, genetic manipulation potentially. It's something that needs to be addressed, but to suggest that it's, you know, not, it's just impossible is preposterous, right? It's just, it was, it was a preposterous position on his face. And it continues to be because there are still people today that are actually saying this, right? And, and this conflation between lab leak and bioweapon, right? Which actually you chronicle in this article, in your article and tablet extensively, 
it continues to this day. You know, you want to talk about the lab leak, people say, hey, it's not a bioweapon. Hey, that's not what I said. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's talk about this, actually. I want to, what, what, let, let's take a little time to dig into, you know, how the media perception, because initially the media perception was actually quite rational, and it's almost easy to forget about that. Yeah, for a, a very um, short, tiny blip of time, they, they had a, a, an okay, a sort of sober reaction to the reporting, the initial reporting, and really kind of trying to think things through. I mean, it was very short. It was probably a week before they really started to flip and to generate this storyline that uh, LabLeak was, belonged in the realm of conspiracy theory. And as you mentioned, Jan, it, it was a lot of by conflating claims about a possible scientific leak with claims of a bioweapons lab leak, which are two very different things. And very, very few people were talking about bioweapons. This was all about a scientific lab leak. That's what Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton came out saying, we need to consider the possibility that this leaked from a scientific lab. Never said anything about a bioweapons program, um, which again, that's also not to say that that needed to be ruled out because China, as we all know, does run bioweapons program. But nevertheless, that was not anything anyone was actually speaking about at the time. What the New York Times along with the Washington Post and Politico and Business Insider and, uh, and CBS News and a, co a cohort of media organizations did was grab Tom Cotton's comments about a scientific leak and conflate them with a bioweapons claim that he never actually made and came out saying, look at what this crazy Republican is saying about the, the origins of the pandemic. This is the kind of thing that lab leak people are saying about this, about the origins um, of the, the virus. How do you account for this, you know, sudden, dramatic, all-encompassing shift to natural zoonotic uh, origin is the only possible explanation or you're a madman, like you mentioned earlier? That, that happens like this and everybody jumps in. And how does that happen? That's a great question, and that's a question that cuts to the core of everything that people are investigating regarding um, gain-of-function research and um, Peter Daszak's involvement in all this, Fauci and Collins, and all these people. You know, there, there is this well-known episode of three or four really top-level researchers um, in the field of virology and surrounding fields going to Fauci and saying, we have evidence showing that this is likely engineered. We have no other way to explain certain elements of the virus other than to think this was engineered. They have the February 1st conference call with Fauci and company and the, and the scientists who came to him with this information. Two days later, those same scientists come out saying, oh, we were wrong. There's no possibility it was engineered. This was purely just a natural and the result of zoonotic spillover. And everyone is now trying to understand what happened on that phone call, what happened in the space of two days where these scientists flipped and came out with a very influential paper saying this is only possible as 
um, as, as a result of animal spillover. It is not possible that it came from a lab. There are a lot of questions circling around this. How that got from there into the consumer media is a question we need to answer. I absolutely think that, again, there is a role that China plays here that cannot be denied. As far as it came from China, it came from a place a few miles, as we all know, from a laboratory where they study these viruses. We have to acknowledge the enormous influence that China wields over the American media. And again, we've talked about that with regard to the New York Times and its desire to enter the Chinese media market. We know, for example, with the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, ten, the half of their top sellers, 10,000 top Amazon sellers are in China. They have huge business interests through their cloud computing so, um, services in China. There is, again, a lever there. And what are the actual mechanisms of how the story suddenly flipped? We don't really know that yet, but we know that it flipped very quickly and very in, in a very extreme manner. It wasn't that these outlets were coming out saying, we think it's probably zoonotic, and most scientists say that. They were saying, on the other hand, this is absolutely zoonotic, and anyone who thinks that it was a lab leak is uh, a conspiracy theorist. They, they polarized the entire conversation to an extent that you could basically not talk about it without being accused of being a racist or xenophobic or any other of those um, epithets. When we reached out to the Washington Post, their spokesperson told us they operate, quote, with complete independence in making all news and editorial decisions. So you describe something that you call a Dashek's triangle, because so Peter Dashek became this rock star, I mean, for, for lack of a better term, basically appearing all over the place, of course, with EcoHealth doing the work that it did. Uh, saying that zoonotic origin is the only possibility and postulating theories about how it works and writing op-eds in the New York Times and, and basically being on every, almost every corporate media you can imagine. What is Dashek's triangle and how does this fit in here? Yeah, Dashek's triangle, it, it was really a, a way for the media to create this, this, um, these three vertices of, of narratives about lab leak and people who purported uh, or were exploring the theory. And what it was claiming was that you were basically anti-environmentalist because the, one of the overarching narratives about zoonotic spillover is that it's the result of humanity's clash with the environment. It's about building too many roads, expanding cities too far into natural habitats. And that if you didn't acknowledge that that was the truth, you were actually denying that there are environmental problems in the world and made you an environmental denialist. On the other part, one other vertices of the triangle is that you were racist because if you were saying, wait, this might've come from China, then you were saying Chinese people are responsible for the virus, where in reality, what you were saying was no, we think maybe there was an accident. Maybe it was a lab accident. Maybe it had to do with uh, poor procedures had nothing to do with 1.4 billion people in China, it had to do with maybe just three or four people in a laboratory. So those are the two vertices. And then the other one was that you were some sort of crazy Republican conspiracy theorist um, 
they, they love to put Steve Bannon in there in this reporting, talking that about the fact that Bannon was talking about bioweapons ideas. So that, that was the triangle that you got locked into thinking about talking about lab leak was environmental denialism, racism, and uh, political reactionaryism. And once you got locked into that triangle, there was just no way out. And it, it was actually quite brilliantly constructed in that regard. Well, so, you know, as I was reading this article and actually, you know, just re rereading this article um, this morning and like, you know, following having read your book, um, I it struck me. And you also mentioned in the book, I think in the 1619 Project chapter, you talk about uh, John McWhorter's work about, uh, you know, what, what he calls the elect and how he imagines uh, people that uh, kind of, you know, guess essentially believe in woke ideology, he calls them the elect, are practicing a, a kind of a religion. He says it's exactly a religion. I, I, would, I would dispute that. I would call it a substitute religion. That's a whole other discussion. But the point is, there's a, there's a kind of a religious fervor associated with basically kind of promoting these particular ideas, right? Which I, and I think, by the way, McWhorter's book, I think, is brilliant in sort of exploring this whole question. And so, you know, it just, the, the, whole, the whole picture here, I, I think to myself, if you know what those touch points are, right, in a newsroom, which is, I don't know if it's dominated, but you could argue is, you know, very, very heavily influenced by this ideology, i.e. the New York Times newsroom, it would be very easy to manipulate uh, these people and manipulate narratives. And I'm wondering, I found myself wondering, is this maybe what Dashik and some of the others interested in doing this did? Yeah, well, he, he certainly had a very easy time um, propagating his message in the New York Times. You know, I went through and I counted uh, well over a dozen instances where they're turning to him as a source, which is fine. But you also look at the sources that were not included on this topic, um, sources that, you know, major, major voices in the scientific community who were advocating for the exploration of the lab leak topic, who were not used as sources by the New York Times. So Dazic, he's got this sort of really almost mystical ability to get into the media. And it was not just the Times. If you name a major media outlet in the United States and some across the world, he was in there. We're talking BBC, CBS, NBC, ABC, Wired, uh, Politico, Axis, you name it, he was there. He was everywhere with this same message. And the media really just grabbed it with both hands. And again, I think that's the question of why. why it never made sense to me to think, why any journalist would care one way or the other whether this thing came from a lab or whether it came from a bat. We actually don't have ev evidence to say it's one way or the other. We don't have an animal that we understand to be the connection, the, the reservoir for the virus. So why would anyone decide that it should be this or should be that? And I think it was, it was in part because there are relationships. You know, if you go back, there, there are a lot of uh, emails, Fauci-related emails released through a Freedom of Information Act um, order. And in one of them, we have uh, Donald McNeil, who's the New York Times' lead coronavirus reporter, emailing Fauci with this sort of like cheerleading rah-rah email saying, great job, Tony, wonderful, you're doing the best, the best kind of work. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, you're reporting on this guy. 
Should there not be an element of distance here, an element of skepticism where you're not his cheerleader behind the scenes telling him how great a job he's doing? Maybe there should be an element where you're, where you're saying, you know, are you sure this is the right way forward? What did you do in terms of gain of function research? But that's when we got to peer behind the curtain. But what we see is that there's this sort of hand in glove relationship between the government and the media. And Dazik, even though he's, uh, you know, he's, he, he's the head of a third party nonprofit organization, but he is very much enmeshed with the scientific establishment and with the government in that regard. So I think that's where we're alerted again to these dangers of media being working too much for an agenda that serves itself, in this case, by serving government interests. Well, and there's this, of course, there's this whole element of, you know, research that basically is being out, outlawed in America, being done and funded, you know, through EcoHealth in China, because you, you, you can do it there. And maybe, and, and, I mean, we, we, we don't know the entire picture, but there's certainly a, a ton of data points that uh, on our end we've been able to find. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely the case. And again, this all came to light, not because the New York Times was doing the very difficult investigation to bring it to light. It came to light because a lot of internet sleuths and a lot of independent media outlets were looking for this stuff. Uh, we're, we're doing the Freedom of Information Act processes necessary to get these emails to see light of day. And again, this is the stuff that the mainstream media should have been doing from day one. But especially considering the considerable amount of resources and experience that they have to do just this kind of investigation. I mean, these kinds of deep investigations are expensive. They're difficult to run. They require a lot of experience. They require a lot of access. And there really should be the purview of the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera. But what happened was it was left to internet sleuths, people on Twitter who were really piecing this stuff together in quite a remarkable way because it all turned out to be backed by evidence. It turned out that these guys were not just wildly guessing. They were actually digging up. Um, they're going through databases. They're finding these studies, they're finding publications from China, and they were piecing it together in a way that is creating something of a mosaic of the truth right now. It's not fully there, but we at least have somewhat of a picture. Well, and so one of the theories, I guess, is, and you addressed this, I found it, I, th I thought that was very interesting. Uh, one of the theories you address as to why uh, there was this media response as it was, was simply, you know, a kind of Trump derangement syndrome or just, you know, if, if Trump says it could be this, it has to be the opposite. But you actually kind of de debunk that theory to some extent. Yeah, Trump had come out against um, against China regarding the pandemic and and for exploring lab leak or, or saying lab leak was the likely origin of the pandemic sometime around April. Um, in February, when the media was calling lab leak a conspiracy theory, Trump was still praising China for its handling of the pandemic. He was really on the same side of the issue as the Chinese government at that time. So, you know, that's the common explanation that people get. It's what Ben Smith from The New York Times gave me when we were talking on Twitter saying, oh, this was just all about Trump. I got that from a number of people, journalists from mainstream media saying Trump did it. I had an interchange with NPR's media reporter who told me the same thing. It was really just because Trump politicized the conversation by coming out 
uh, against the Chinese government and for lab leak. And I, I, you just look at the timeline, it's really clear. I mean, it, it doesn't, again, it doesn't take a crack squad of investigators to go back and look at the timeline where Trump came out in, against China only in March and for lab leak only in April. And the media had really gone into overdrive against lab leak in early February, mid-February. Um, so the timeline just didn't, didn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Okay, so why again? Why, I think, is, is the difficult question to, to answer. And I think it's probably not really one thing. I think there is the background um, sympathy for the CCP that is in the media, that they are very nervous about angering the CCP. I think that's become this sort of cultural moray within the media saying, don't piss them off because we know what happens to journalists. We know they get their access revoked. They get thrown out of China. And to, for journalists to do their jobs and for news organizations to cover China effectively, they have to have that access. So I think there, there's initially that reservation to do anything that is going to anger the CCP right off the bat. I think another part of this is that you've got these relationships between top science reporters and people like Anthony Fauci and the rest of that cadre, um, the very top of the immunology and virology world, the, the scientific establishment, they're in, enmeshed. And it's the same kind of client relationship that you know Donald McNeil needs access to Fauci if he's going to be the best in the business. He's going to get access to that top player. And in order to maintain that access, you have to toe the line. And that's that theme that we return to that I've spoken about through this entire conversation is that you got to bring home the goods. And if you're going to bring home the goods, you got to play ball. You got to play ball with the right people. In some cases, that's Joseph Stalin. In some cases, that's Hitler. In some cases, it's Fidel Castro. In some cases, in this particular case, it's the very top ranks of the American scientific community. And what we see throughout this is that nobody from the mainstream media was asking those people the tough questions. What we got was Fauci is this really demigod of science. He's the you know incarnate of perfection, and he's leading us to victory. That it was this bizarre campaign in the media about Fauci. We say, wait a second, this is just a human being. He's just a guy. Maybe he's making mistakes. Maybe he's improperly incentivized. Maybe he's doing things that were intended to be good for the country and for the American people, but had a bad outcome. We don't know, but nobody was asking those questions. So I think that's another part of it is that you've got this clientelistic relationship on the part of the media. And then I think there is the X factor. What actually happened? Why was the science media so eager to, to take up this mantle uh, against lab leak so quickly? And how did that translate into the consumer media? Who was calling those shots? We still don't know. And the remarkable thing is that aside from one or two reporters out there, Josh Rogan at the Washington Post being a very notable exception, you have almost nobody looking into this stuff. It's, it's crazy. It's remarkable. This is the story of our lifetimes, the pandemic that has killed, I don't know what the number is now, but it is in the millions. It's absolutely tragic. It's a catastrophe that none of us had even conceived of before. And you would think that you in every organization, every news organization out there, there would be a phalanx of journalists looking into the origins, and there's not. 
there is not that reporting going on. And that in itself is a red flag. No, and it, it's fascinating. And actually, you know, to, to Josh's credit, he does maintain these kind of relationships uh, very clearly when you look at his reporting with people that are that he's not necessarily buddy buddy with, but because of his professionalism, he's able to he, he's able to to get some great great scoops. You know, I I keep thinking about this. There's all these examples of media malfeasance, so to speak, recently. Most recent being the the reporting for a year on the Kyle Rittenhouse kind of case and sort of creating an idea in people's minds. I mean, I think most Americans could be excused for believing all sorts of crazy falsehoods that were debunked in the actual trial, which was televised, right? Um, I mean, that it's an interesting example. We talk about Jesse Smollett. He, he just was found guilty, right? And, and again, the media ran with a, a very, very different, you know, picture uh, than reality without really asking a lot of questions. Um, these, this Covington kid situation, you know, he got a, a ma- sizable settlement from CNN and some other media, right, for slander and things like that. But so, you know, we mentioned these things, but this is probably, you know, maybe up there with the Russia collusion hopes as the mother of... Uh, uh, fallacious misreporting, again, media malfeasance. I keep, I keep saying this word, but that's what it is. Um, I, actually, do you, do you have a thought on this? You know, is, is, which <laughs> is a funny question to ask, isn't it? Is, is, is this Russia collusion hoax worse? Or is, <laughs> um, you know, basically this whole situation around the lab leak theory being impossible worse? Or you know, are there other things that we don't even realize? And where's the accountability? I think, um, you know, comparing the two, it, it is a bit of an apples and oranges with the Russia, the, tr- the Trump collusion reporting. Um, it, it, at the end of the day, it was very revelatory about the media and their, and not just their assumptions, which I think we all know that their assumptions are for the most part, but the extent that they were willing to go to in order to prove those assumptions right in the public sphere um, and again, it was at all costs. This was like sort of a scorched earth campaign when it came to Trump and Russia. No matter what the cost, no matter what fact you had to trample to get to that destination, they were ready to do it. And they did it for three, four, five years. I think it's it's still going on in some ways. Um, I think there has been, in that case, this tiny bit of accountability, this tiny pullback You've had an article here or there, the Washington Post, they took a few articles down and, you know, everyone sort of uh, gasps at that where Sally Busby at the Washington Post removes a few articles and this is supposed to be this sort of watershed moment for journalism that she did that. But in reality, it has no, no, um, is not proportionate in any way to the extensiveness of the reporting on on Trump and Russia and the so-called collusion. And that is... Egregious. I mean, there is just no other way to say it, whether or not you like Trump or supported Trump. I think on either side of that issue, you've got to say, wait a second, forget the politics. They reported on this story for four or five years that was just not true. And they were telling us all this. This was absolutely the case. This was taken as a premise. It was taken as the, the, the starting point that he had colluded with the Russians. And there was never ever any evidence to support that. In fact, the opposite. It was all false. But when it comes to lab leak, I think we are talking of something about something that has um, historic and universal significance. I mean, 
we're talking about something that has forever changed the history of humanity. I mean, there is just nothing like this. And we could say, of course, there have been major pandemics in the past, the Spanish flu um, killing untold millions. But that was 100 years ago, where we didn't have medical science that we have today, technology, all these investments by the Gates Foundation into being able to predict pandemics of this sort, head them off, uh, treat them. This is something that is shaken all of our lives, every single one of us, to its core. We have all been changed. And I think in, in a lot of ways that we don't yet understand. And we still don't know where this came from. And all we know is that the media acted in a way that was fallacious and unethical and still has not provided any sort of accountability whatsoever in terms of not just correcting the record where they were wrong, but correcting their actions, which means to say, okay, we were wrong, now let's go investigate. They haven't actually taken that next step. And that's, again, that's the really worrying part because it's all very well for an editor to go and write a nice little paragraph online on the article saying, sorry, we got this wrong. We're going to take out the word fringe theory here. We're going to take out the word uh, the over here, replace it with an indefinite article, whatever. It doesn't matter. What really matters is that they actually do the reporting and they're still not doing it. No, and that and that's fascinating because that's what I was going to ask. You know, what would accountability look like? But basically, you're saying, first of all, presumably some sort of you know front page or very very large, uh, 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 visible reporting that says we were wrong. Is I guess I guess that would be one of the elements. You know, there, there's this really interesting concept in the Jewish faith um, that I belong to of, of repentance and the way Jewish people or the tradition thinks about repentance is that first you change your actions and then you say sorry second. And I think that's the case here is that first you would need to change the actions, which means go out and start doing that reporting. Go create a team um, at each of these major media institutions that was is looking into this question that's all that they're going to do for the next two years until they get answers. And then you can come and say sorry to the American public or to the global public for lying to us. But until they've done that first step, none of it matters. They can come out and write these nice articles or do podcasts on NPR about how they got it wrong, about Trump and about whatever. It doesn't matter. And I think the reason it doesn't matter is because we don't believe them. That's at the end of the day, the important part. We don't trust them. And until they take action that earns our trust, none of it is going to matter. So, you know, the other thing that kind of comes through, and I, I keep thinking about this lately, and I, I, for example, I know, you know, from having read your book and, and some of your other work, that you are a truth-seeking journalist, okay? And that's odd to have to say that because, you know, it, it seems to me like there's this sort of other brand of journalism, and perhaps it's connected with, with, the, with the elect, as John McWhorter calls them, but this, but but frankly, what your book describes is that for decades, there's been this type of reporting which is much more focused. I actually, actually, come to think of it, you call it folk journalism. I think you come up with this idea, right, where you pick a narrative and you make everything fit that narrative, right? 
Um, I don't like it called be, being called folk journalism, by the way. Folk journalism feels like somehow positive. This is, this is a terrible thing, right? Um, at least in my mind. But it's, it's like there's, there's a whole series of journalists out there or a whole bunch of journalists that maybe don't even believe that truth-seeking is their work. Is this, are we in some kind of, you know, epistemic crisis here? What is truth, right? Yeah, you've got this, this group of journalists and this culture of journalism that is not really about what we traditionally understood as journalism. It's not really about gathering facts and trying to string them together in a cohesive storyline. It's rather about serving uh, power structures. It's about, or serving themselves, you know, in the case of, these prize-winning journalists, like, get the Pulitzer. Again, this is the common thread. Get the, Durante got the Pulitzer. He brought home the bacon. You or the, the Berlin Bureau during World War II and the lead-up to World War II, two of those reporters won Pulitzers. The same thing with the 1619 Project and its Pulitzers. You're serving, the, you're serving yourself and you're serving the system, and the system rewards you for serving it. And that becomes the goal and it's they're very successful in that regard they get a tv series they get the network the netflix production deal whatever you know in my case particularly i'm i'm probably never going to win a pulitzer you know i'm not after a prize it's not within my realm of consideration it's not what i what motivates me and i, I think when we look at other independent journalists it's the same thing they're not in that ecosystem anyways they're not seeking those shiny prizes they don't need to think about serving power in that way. They're able to run afoul of those power structures. And what that means is that they're free to do their work. They're free to just go and follow the facts wherever they might lead, including to those very uncomfortable places that people don't really want to talk about, like lab leak. It didn't, it's not, you know, it's not good for a career or for a journalist's um ability to get one of these great prizes or to get a book deal with a major publisher if you are risking yourself being called a conspiracy theorist or a fringe theorist. But if you don't care about those things, then you're able to seek them out and you seek out the truth anyways. And I think that that's, again, this great sort of front line, this new emerging wave of independent journalism that is really just about finding what happened and telling it to people. It's really that simple. Well, and but what about folks that ideologically, and I, I keep that these these people exist, and presumably the 1619 Project sort of spawns from this idea that truth is what we say it is. That to me is the core, this core paradigm shift that we're seeing not just in journalism, we're seeing it throughout the culture um, in America. We're seeing it in academia, in media and entertainment. And that shift is that, you know, from in the enlightenment, we had this notion that truth is power, that if you could find the truth, you had an ability to understand the world in a way that gave you an inner power. With woke, um, the woke awakening, so to speak, they've inverted that where power is truth. Whatever enhances their power in the world is just truth. And that is actually the literal definition of critical theory. We've heard a lot about critical race theory, stems from critical theory. Critical theory explicitly says whatever helps emancipate oppressed people is the truth. But the question there is who, de who decides who is oppressed and who is the oppressor? 
and it's it's us the per- the person who is seeking power and that's how they've made truth into a tool in some cases a weapon and that's really i think one of the most dangerous trends we're seeing in american culture right now well ashley i've been really enjoying this this conversation any final thoughts as we finish up here you know, someone recently asked me, it's a question I get asked a lot, is what do we do about this individually? You know, we're just little old us. And I, my answer in one part is to say, go out and seek for yourself. We all have the tools. Go find the sources that are important to you and the storylines that are, are important to you and go seek the truth and do your best to approximate it. Never, I think, go into a situation saying, oh, I have the full truth, unadulterated and pure, and it's mine now. I think that's the wrong way. But to say, I'm going to do my best to approximate it. And I think another part of that is just to say, to understand that truth is something you practice. You can practice truth by reading a great book about whatever subject. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be historical or political. It could be about biology or, or ornithology or whatever floats your boat. But when you put yourself in a position where you are embracing the truth as something you do moment by moment, day by day, I think you create a positive force in the world. And I think that's what this is all really about. Well, Ashley Rinsberg, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Jan. I appreciate that. Our team reached out to the New York Times for comment, but they did not respond. 